Today on the Bible Archives, we are going to explore Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5. And this text is most notable because of the story of Cain and Abel. But really, these two chapters work together to set the stage for what happens post-Eden. And how does that affect the narrative? How does that affect the covenant? How does that affect the story of the world as it goes? So you're going to get a lot of foundational information. This is very ideological, just like a lot of Genesis has been. So you get a lot of conversation on why is the world this way? And that's going to implicate the rest of the narrative. So I think Genesis 4 and 5, they're important, but it appears that they're kind of overlooked. You would think like even the Cain and Abel narrative, that's something that people are very familiar with, right? Well, I I suppose not, just based on uh, some of the conversations that we've had. Uh, So I think it's important. We're just going to start with a synopsis, a little bit of overview, some interesting details, and then we'll go ahead and walk through the text as a whole. So what do we need to know about Genesis chapter 4? Yeah, well, I'll just give a synopsis of the story then. Um, It starts with Eve and Adam out of the garden, and Eve becomes pregnant and has two sons, Cain and Abel. And as they become adults, Abel becomes a shepherd, and Cain becomes a farmer. So one day they decide that they're going to offer an offering to God, and Abel, being a shepherd, offers the best of his flocks, and then Cain, being a farmer, offers the first fruits from his gardens and his, and his fields. And for some reason, which the Bible does not tell us, God favors Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, and Cain becomes jealous. The text says his face falls and his heart constricts, and so God questions him. He says to him, Cain, why are you upset? If you did well, everything will be well for you. But be careful that sin is waiting for you. This is the first place, by the way, where we see the word sin mentioned in the text. But he says, sin is crouching and waiting for you. Well, Cain ignores that advice. He lures his brother out into the field and he kills him. Later on, then God comes looking for Cain and he said, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain at this point offers the famous line, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to him, your brother's blood calls out to you from the ground, and I know that you killed him, so you are cursed now off the land. The the ground will no longer produce for you. And Cain at this point says, this is too harsh a punishment for me. Anyone who meets me is going to kill me. So God puts a special mark upon him to keep him from being killed. And Cain then has to become a wanderer. He does get a wife, and he goes off into what they call the land of Nod, which really just means nowhere. From a literary viewpoint, when looking at the scriptures, we do know that this is what they call the J source, and there are four different sources in the, in the Bible, and this is one that we recognize because there are certain um, similar ideas that you'll see to connecting also with the creation story, especially the second and third chapters. So in the J source, you usually will find a more narrative style. Uh, God's name is Yahweh, and that's the case in this story. And what we see is, is God interacting directly with Cain. He explains things to him. He kind of does a little bit of a bargain there with him. And this is all very common to that J source. Um, and there's also a similarity to, to chapter 3 in Genesis, where what we see is a pattern of there's some kind of negative action, then there's an interrogation, some kind of a punishment, and then God showing compassion. So in this case, what we see is Cain murders his brother. 
God asks Cain, where is your brother? And then when he's told, then there is the, the, the punishment or the, yeah, the negative action of God cursing the ground on his account and then sending him off into exile, basically, or off to wander. We see that again in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve break the commandment about eating from the tree of knowledge. God asks them, where are you? And then he says to them, did you eat from the tree? And when they admit it's wrong, then they are driven out from the garden. But at that point then, what God does for Adam and Eve is he makes clothing for them. And then in the case of Cain, he puts a mark upon him so that he won't be killed. Yeah, and what I find interesting about, and this is something that we've seen with Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, is what we talked about in the overview, that there are various influences acting upon how this got composed. And it's the same with this, like the, the motif of the brothers, uh, the, the pattern that you're talking about. So what are some of the, the components that we see from ancient Near Eastern culture that show up in Genesis 4? Well, definitely that motif of the brothers. This is a very common one. Um, we see it in some of the Egyptian stories. We see it in Babylonian stories. And we find it later on in the text where you have Jacob and Esau. You have Isaac and Ishmael. You have uh, Joseph and his brothers. And what's interesting about the story of Joseph is that also appears in one of the Egyptian stories about brothers where the younger brothers... Um, in, in service to his older brother, and when he goes to the house, the older brother's wife tries to seduce him. And we see that story with Joseph as well. So a lot of times, these stories will have similar ideas or similar motifs and, and influences on them that show us that these stories didn't just arise out of nowhere. They weren't just made up by the people who were writing them, but they actually are part of their cultural mm-hmm. um, milieu, and, and the people would have hearing them would have known those stories and recognized them. And they're borrowing those, but then they're also changing them. So yeah. one of the connections here is we're going to get a character named Seth. And uh, that seems to be a character from Egyptian culture that also had an interaction with a brother. But the story of the Egyptian version goes a little bit differently. So how is that one different than what we see with Cain and Abel? Well, it's kind of interesting because we have a bracket in Genesis chapter 4. It starts with Eve having a child, Cain. And then at the end of it, we see Eve having another child, and this is Seth. Well, what's interesting about that is Seth is an Egyptian name, and Seth was a god at the time who was the brother of Osiris, and he tries to kill his brother. Um, And so it's like, it's the same story. It's like Seth kills his brother just the same way Cain kills his brother. So we kind of see where anybody hearing this story would have been like, oh, that reminds me of that story about the god Seth and his brothers. But in this narrative, Seth is not the one who does the killing. Seth is going to play a different role. So we'll look at that uh, more as we go through the text. Um, But let's just start going through what happens here in Genesis 4, because I find this story uh, very, very intriguing on its own. I I think this deserves as much prominence as some of the other ones, just because it's fascinating what happens. And and I do think it's trying to inform um, the meta-narrative of the Jewish people in general. So the first thing that we see happen, Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, Adam and, and Eve, human and life, you know, if we're still using those Hebrew words, uh, are moved east of Eden. They're protected from uh, the garden. That's a case that we made in the last episode. 
And the first thing we see that happens here is uh, the man knew his wife Eve, depending on your translation there. So if we were to just work out that phrase, uh, the man, the Adam, knew the woman. And the Hebrew word there is isha, which could be wife or just woman in general. And that's an interesting distinction. Anytime you're reading Hebrew and you see the word woman or uh, the word wife, it's usually the same Hebrew word. Um, but it's this, the, the word I want to focus on is uh, the word know, which in Hebrew is yada. And it means to know or perceive or see. And it has this uh, framework of intimacy to it and the knowing of this these two people leads to a new human being and what i find interesting about the hebrew perspective here is that the knowing has less to do with a physical act and more with the disposition so if we carry this back to genesis 2 and we're told like uh, they will become one flesh and there's this clinging that happens the connection is what's important there and so it seems like in Hebrew consciousness, the physical act is a byproduct which brings physical life. So sex and children are inherent outcomes of the knowing. And, you know, this doesn't have a whole lot with where the story is going to go in general, except for that emphasis of connection between beings. That seems to be a, a, a very viable action. But I just think it's very fascinating to go, that's how they perceived that, uh, that, that sexual event. And it's just so different than American culture today, I suppose. Um, but they produce, right? And this is the act of creation. This is literally what they were told to do, to, to bear fruit and multiply. And now it's happening. So we see some fulfillment. They're outside of the garden now, but we still see them upholding those commands. And I, and I just don't think that's something that's always brought up about Genesis 4. Um, and so they have two children, Cain and Abel. Um, and again, the names are going to be important because remember, names in the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew in general, are words that they identify a person with. Now, one of the questions with this brother motif is, are they twins? We're not really told uh, if they were born at the same time or if there is some space between there. We, we don't get a, a time reference to their births. But it is kind of imposed on the text that they are, they are twins, right? The implication is, is there, even though it's not explicit. Um, but in general, twins, but specifically brothers, that is a huge motif. And uh, we, we constantly see that anytime you have brothers, not only is that borrowing from ancient Near Eastern cultural narratives, it always implicates the covenant somehow in the future of Israel. And that's usually because one brother is going to continue the covenant and one's not. Um, but anytime you see this idea of brothers coming up, you got to be thinking this is going to uh, shape Israel's identity somehow. This is interesting because actually because of what Cain did and his brother Abel then was killed. So Abel wasn't able to be part of that. Uh, narrative or, or the continuation of Israel, Seth is usually the one then in the genealogies that is included as the one who then continued that mm. line of Israel. In fact, I think that that is that Seth genealogy appears both in First Chronicles and then in Luke, the in the New Testament as part of the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, and uh, 
the impact of that we're going to see here. But we should just be clued in. As soon as you see brothers, you should be clued in that this story is going to have vast effects. Now, going to the names. So, again, they are literal words that reflect the identity and circumstance of the person in question. And that's also going to be a theme throughout the Hebrew Bible. So people are named for what describes them. And that's just very different than our culture. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you talk about names because the name Abel, for example, can be translated either as a vapor or even as that which has no substance. And basically, the idea that I have heard is that the reason they use that name for him is because he was not able to continue. He was cut off from being part of that line of Israel. Yeah. Um, and Cain it has this notion of possession or acquiring or ownership. And uh, I also like thinking of their names as this contrast because of what we're going to be told about their occupations that uh, Cain possesses something where Abel as vapor, no substance, doesn't have any of those possessions about him. So I, I do think that uh, the names here, uh, again, just like throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures, they're very important to look at how is that going to implicate the story. So the next thing we're told about them is these occupations, these roles. And Abel is a shepherd and uh, Cain is a farmer. And I, this is my opinion, and I think Amy even is going to disagree with me on this a little bit. I think that's the engine of the narrative. Okay. And I think this reflects the offerings they bring. So this all kind of happens real quick in the narrative. We're not given a whole lot of background information regarding this. But they bring offerings, and uh, we sometimes hear that God's responses to the offering is arbitrary because they bring the same offering. And and Amy kind of alluded to this, like, why does God, why does Adonai get upset with uh, Cain's offering and not Abel's? They they both bring things that are practically the same, right? And I disagree. I, I think that they are not the same at all because Abel brings the first fruits of the flock and we're told their fat portions. Cain brings the first fruits of the ground. Now, in order to understand some of this, you got to be looking at Leviticus and the offering system and that clues us into these details. But why does Adonai uh, in the words used here are look to or regard or respect or behold Abel's offering and not Cain's. Is this just random chance? Or is the actual content of the offering important? Well, you know, Tyler, I'd like to offer a bit of a rebuttal to that because I don't necessarily think so. My own opinion about it is that the idea of the nomadic agricultural theme isn't necessarily a conscious one, but may have kind of crept in because the later editors of these stories would have not been until post-exilic or, or during the exile times. By that time, I'm not so sure that those things would have made as much of a difference. However, I'm not just basing that on just some idea that I have. Um, there is a couple of scholars, one or two, that agree with me. I suppose you can find a scholar one or to agree two. with you. Yeah, I'm sure you can find a scholar to agree with anything you think. Try a bunch of them. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> there 
there's a, a man named Nahum Sarna who wrote a book called Understanding Genesis. Yeah, and, and who has great work, by the way. This is his, yeah, you would know. Um, anyway, I'm going to quote from him a little bit and tell you what he thinks about this. And um, what he says is that there is no hint of disparagement of the occupation of tiller of the soil. So it's like basically there's nothing wrong with being a farmer. These are two common ways, most likely the, the most common ways for people to... Um, to make a living back then. So on the contrary, it's regarded as a natural occupation. Adam was a tiller of the soil. In fact, in Genesis 2, God even says, or I shouldn't say God says, the, the, the text says, there, the ground did not produce because there was no one to till it. So Cain was doing what he was supposed to do as a human yep. being. Um, Cain doesn't necessarily represent a type, according to Nahum Sarna. He says he's neither an ethic type nor an occupational type was restricted to Cain himself. His sons were not cursed by with the same thing, and there's no discrimination made between his offspring and those of his brother Seth, who later comes along. Um, also, Cain's offspring are, are etiologically described as people who are the beginners of things like cattle rearing, which is a nomadic thing to do, music, metalwork. These are kind of um, important parts of being a semi-nomadic culture. So, According to Nathan Sarna, he says, based on those things, that this story should be examined as something that kind of stands on its own. It's an etiological story about sibling rivalry and anything that might have to do with the idea of farming and, and uh, herding life probably is not really central to the story. So I hope that proves to be an example of we're not just trying to give our opinions, though our opinions are going to indict a lot of what we say. We are just trying to tell you, here's some of the broad range of thoughts on right. this. That being said, <laughs> I want to riff for a moment, and I want to look at the potential outcome of this initial perspective. The occupational roles of shepherd and farmer, I agree with everything um, that, that he's saying about that. But I want to focus on what does this have to do with the offerings. And one of the things I'd push back on is uh, that theme carries forward as we keep going through Genesis 1 through 11. So maybe an anecdote, a personal anecdote on progress and technology, which again, I think this is going to come up again. We'll at least see this in Genesis 10 and 11. What's the difference between a shepherd, husbandry, and a farmer. Now, I do agree that uh, the, the, the text itself, if it's composed post-exile or even during exile, at that point, agricultural society is what Israel is. So to, to say that agriculture is wrong, I, d I don't think that's the case that this is making. I do think they're trying to point to something a little bit more abstract that shows up through the medium of agriculture in comparison to the nomadic culture of hunter-gatherer systems, etc. So one is going to have very settled and set boundaries. And if, if you're looking at this from uh, just a sociological or uh, anthropological course of history, there is a, a, a movement from nomadic to semi-nomadic to settled. And that kind of coincides with hunter-gatherer and um, agriculture. But uh, 
I do think that there is a riff going on here about that progression. Not that the things themselves are wrong, but there's something that I think the text wants us to pay attention to. So a, a farmer is going to have land to protect. A shepherd does not. And again, thinking about the names here, Cain, acquired, possess, own, able, uh, vapor, not any substance. So that can refer to the direction their, their narratives are going to go where one dies and one, you know, sort of acquires the life and the legacy of the other. But it can also discuss their actual roles within life, which I think looking at the role of Hebrew names is, it's not far-fetched to say that they're described for what they're like in that moment. If a shepherd is just wandering around, they embody more of that nomadic culture, though it's fair to say that a shepherd could still belong to um, an agricultural society or a semi-nomadic or a settled society. But is there a conflict here between those two? And does the conflict inform what is going on with the offerings? And that's what I want to focus on. Because the conflict that's going to happen between these brothers stems from a certain technological progress if we look at it that way. And it it all comes back to this illusion of ownership, which is something that I do think that the Hebrew perspective is against. Not necessarily agriculture, but the idea of ownership uh, and boundaries does seem to take on more of a nuance compared to other societies at the time. So is the difference that Abel's firstlings are still perceived to be Adonai's while Cain's first fruits are still viewed as Cain's. Can Adonai not behold Cain's offering because Cain thinks it is his, while Abel is simply giving back what he believes to be Adonai's in the first place? So the problem here is that the content of the offering doesn't seem to be that different, though we do get a mention of the fat portions, which seems to allude to some of the offerings within the Levitical system that have a higher esteem than just a basic grain offering or a first fruit offering. But I want to take this further, that it's more about that disposition of the offerer uh, than it is the actual content here. And this comes down to a Hebrew word, kavanah which means attitude of the heart. And it's something that shows up again and again and again. It's something that I think in a more abstract society like ours, we can relate to. So there is the thing, and then there's the posture of the person doing the thing. And the question here is whether or not Cain and Abel's specific situations naturally condition a particular kavanah, a particular attitude of the heart. Does accumulation and ownership and boundaries and competition, etc., that come with moving from a nomadic culture to a semi-nomadic culture to a settled culture, implicate how one might view their stuff and therefore implicate the way that thing is offered? So again, nomadic, semi-nomadic, settled, aren't necessarily the problems, but they seem to come with a certain baggage that could affect the intention that is set up in, you know, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And this is where the text shifts. It shifts to Cain's response. So what what goes on with Cain's response? And this is where I think, I think the point here is about Kavanaugh. So before, before we get into that part, to, to help, I, I don't know if this is making sense or not. When Jesus talks about wealth in the New Testament, 
wealth is not necessarily in and of itself the bad thing. It is the almost required disposition of the person with wealth that Jesus uh, condemns. So this is where a lot of New Testament scholars or just pastors in general will go, see, Jesus doesn't condemn wealth. You know, it's, it's the, you know, not using your wealth poorly. Well, no, I, I think that Jesus condemns wealth. I, I, I think that that's in there. Um, and, and I think that it's rather adamant, especially as you see the New Testament narrative uh, with the start of the early church coming out of Judaism as it goes. Um, but there seems to be certain dispositions of a person who has wealth that are almost unavoidable in, in accumulating the stuff that's going to affect how they're able to interact with a particular covenant. I'm saying that it's the same thing here with uh, the ownership of property settled and agriculture is not the problem. You know, like you said, that shows up in Genesis 2. Little you could make a case it shows up in Genesis 1 as well. Definitely a point in Genesis 3. It's going to be a huge part of Israel's story going forward. Agriculture is not the problem. It's the effects that agriculture has on the person. Uh, and, and on the society. So think of uh, like Marshall McLuhan's media ecology. This is talking about how the medium of something is the actual message. So we probably all heard that phrase, the medium is the message. Right. And it's that, you know, a literary society is going to have certain effects on how it's going to operate based on what is common. And I think an agricultural society, one of those effects is these boundaries, these this sense of ownership um, and I think the the Hebrew covenant is more against that because it's all supposed to be God's. And that's what Abel gets right. He just also happens to be nomadic, uh, doing husbandry. Um, and Cain, nothing wrong with the farming. When the farming takes on this particular uh, content of the medium, it ends up leading to this particular discrepancy. Now, can one be nomadic? This is what Amy is arguing. Can right. one be nomadic and still accumulate lots and lots of animals and still have lots and lots of stuff and still have a certain possession on that stuff, even if they're traveling around with it? Yeah, we see this with Abraham. We see this with Jacob. We see this uh, with some of the early monarchic periods within Israel. That definitely happens. Uh, again, the issue here is not, uh, is one form of society better than the other? I think it's just one form of society and civilization, civilization have particular effects that aren't seen to be uh, aligned with the covenant compared to the other. Because what's going to happen with Israel's history? They're going to become a settled agricultural society. They are promised land to have. But the difference is it's not their land. It's a gift. It's all God's land. And that's what sets Israel apart from some of their neighbors. All right, now we need to get back to the offering situation here. And, and so again, the text shifts now, and it starts talking about Cain's response and his anger. And, and I want us to focus on the Kavanaugh part, not so much the, the strict category of nomadic or agricultural or hunter-gatherer or settled or any of that. I think it's Cain's posture that causes the problem because what we see is Cain gets angry and the point becomes about how his posture falls, his continence falls. Also, we don't see Adonai condemn Cain. There is no direct condemnation in the text. 
what we see is uh, kind of what you've talked about in that pattern of compassion. And it's the same thing that we saw in Genesis 3. Cain is shown the way towards the good acceptable, acceptable thing. And if Cain doesn't, now, for the first time, we have the issue of sin. And you had, you had brought this up. This right. is the first time the word sin, hathat, shows up in the Bible mm-hmm. at all. And it's described as the potential result of a kavanah and a way of life that disconnects one from goodness and God and others and therefore yourself. It's still not discussed as a bad thing, something to be punished for necessarily. Um, it's discussed as a missing of the mark. So the discussion with, uh, with Cain on sin, it's one of Isaiah as invitation. Cain here has the opportunity to reorient himself towards what is good and ideal. That's sin. It's not necessarily an action, though it can stem from certain actions. And it's not necessarily a wrong in, in the case that uh, it's a moral failure on Cain's part here. It's, it's not that Cain is a sinner. It's a missing of the mark that provides an opportunity to orient one's life differently. Now, anything that is an intentional moral failure, that's what the Bible describes as evil. And that's going to come up uh, here quite shortly, actually. Not sin. Cain is not described negatively in that whole conversation. He's, it's the invitation. He has to master his life in accordance with the ideal of life that has been presented to the, the first human so far. It's an ideal versus reality. And the real problem here, this is where I think this all comes back to, the real problem here is overextension. And this is what we talked about in Genesis chapter 3. What was wrong with how they interacted with the tree? What was wrong with how they interacted with the garden? Overextension. What has Cain done in uh, having a settled boundary that he calls his own? If that's what's going on, it's an overextension. And I think that's what Cain's name represents more than anything. Possession, acquiring. That is a human being overextending himself. And that's where the opportunity of sin is, hey, don't do that. That's what I think is going on. So, how does Cain do this? How does he respond? Do we see a reorienting? Do we see a alignment and, and a putting Cain in Cain's proper place in relationship to God, to others, to himself, to creation? You know, that's the picture of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Proper relationship. God's in God's proper place. Humans are in their proper place. Things function well. When that gets out of whack and overextends, well, things stop going as well. And that's where I say the problem there with the offerings is more about Cain's covenant and overextension. Abel doesn't seem to have that. And I think the setting, the, the medium of their work contributes to that. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. I think it contributes. Cain's response, covenant doesn't change. No. What does he do? Takes his brother out to the field. And I love, I love this picture. I'm not, this is not in the text. This is my own head uh, okay. creating uh-huh. this imagery. I love the picture that Cain takes Abel out to Cain's field that Cain owns, right? That he has this understanding. This is my field. He says, right. come here, Abel. I want to show you. I want to show you where your animals have been eating. And it's these oh. crops that I've been <laughs> growing. Yeah. See it right here. And, and it, it, 
appears to me like the same ownership overextension conflict. Takes his brother out to the field, and it says he rises up against his brother, which is very military language. You know, a, a kingdom or a tribe rising up against another one. And this is where we're now we're starting to transcend the people themselves. And we're starting to see depictions of society in a way where the problem with Cain and Abel is going to be the same problem we're going to see throughout history is these groups of people rising up against each other. Why? Because they overextended and they thought they possessed something that was theirs and they either needed to protect themselves from somebody else who was infringing or they had to go get more. And then he kills, uh, he kills Abel, and and the Hebrew word there is harag, which it could be killed, could be destroyed, could also be eliminated, and that's where that that other part of Abel's mm-hmm. name, yeah. vapor, becomes, you know, really interesting, because what were the humans commanded in Genesis one? Yeah, they were commanded to multiply, and now Abel can't mm-hmm. do that. They're commanded to mul- multiply, and then towards the end. Nothing with the breath of life is supposed to take the breath of life from somebody else. Right. Well, what has Cain done? He's turned his brother into vapor. Ooh. He's eliminated his identity yeah. and his body, and all he is now is breath. Mm-hmm. He took the breath of life away because the breath of life needs the dust in order for it to be a living being, and he's destroyed that. So it's not just he killed Abel. Right. We got to see past this to also realize no, he's destroyed. Abel. He's eliminated the breath of life. And I, I love that, the, the play on those words, the very thing that they've been commanded not to do. And uh, the whole situation with overextension and Kavanaugh is that Cain's response to a lack of his own, which I think it's fair to make a case that that is a result of the setting that Cain created for himself is to remove the breath of life from someone he considers a threat. And I think that motif is important because that's what shows up again and again and again. You look at uh, any of the wars mentioned, you look at any of the murders mentioned throughout the text, it's somebody else is a threat and I have to eliminate them. And God has said, no, that's not how this is supposed to work. Um, And we're going to see this sort of violence, this physical violence is rising up. It's going to be a situation in the next, uh, in two chapters here in Genesis 6. And all of this comes from a situation that Cain created, reflected in his Kavanaugh, which leads to anger, which leads to somebody being a nemesis, which leads to murder. And I love looking at this. You know, it starts with Cain's anger. Why? Well, mm-hmm. because he chose this thing, now he's angry of how things went, sort of the natural consequences. You, you chose this, and here's what happened. Now you're angry about it, and anger leads to this becoming a dehumanized other, and now they're dead. Jesus seems to articulate the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, do not even be angry with your brother. Right. Um, because that is that is removing a certain sense of their livelihood, turning them into vapor, into able. Um, and I think that, that itself, like that, that preaches there, right? Now, um, the next thing we see is God, you, you know, this is what you brought up with the, the Yahweh source. Mm-hmm. God shows up, Adonai shows up, and says, where's Abel? Yeah. And I love that picture of, like, what, 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 did he really not know? Does God really <laughs> not know what's going on here? Um, but we've seen that question before. That's right. Saw that in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. 
the the negative thing happens and God says, where are you? Yeah. And I think we mentioned this in Genesis 3 that one way rabbis have talked about it is like, how'd that go for you? Yeah. Where are you now? Mm-hmm. Um, so where is Abel? And, and this is that, uh, is that a cultural trope? The I am my brother's keeper? I thought so. I was surprised at the people who didn't know that. I okay. consider that so much a part. I mean, I've heard it in literature. I've seen it so many times as a thing that people say. Mm-hmm. I was very surprised that people didn't recognize that. Am I my brother's keeper? It's, yeah, it's practically a, a cliche. Okay. Well, um, that's fair. Mm-hmm. I, th- I mean, nowadays it is. E- either way, I think it's mm-hmm. worth wondering, is that a rhetorical question or an honest question? Oh, in this case, no. I, To my mind, it reminds me of a parent when you walk in the room and you know darn well your kid did the thing. It's like, who did that? And the kids are all like, mm, not, not me. Yeah. And, of course, the parent knows. And so mm. I'm sure in this case it's a case where, you know, God would know. But he's asking to see what Cain's response will be. Is he going to take responsibility for it or is he not? Well, what I, the way I read this and what I find really fascinating about this, and I, and I also have a uh, uh, predilection for the principle of first mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we saw that with uh, some of the, some of the stuff going on with uh, the curse being a repeated pattern. Right. And um, Cain's interaction with Abel as referring back to this thing that's already been said. Mm-hmm. I think this is another case of it. And this is where, you know, I've, you, you've told me about some, some scholars that kind of disconnect this. It sits on its own from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And even Genesis 1. And, and I have a hard time seeing that because it just seems like it's self-referencing itself so much that it expects that you, you'll get this if you've understood that part of the story. I wouldn't say that it's so much about not connected as when you start to get into the idea of things like, well, where did Cain get his wife or why were there cities? Because technically there shouldn't have been more than four people on the planet. Now one of them's dead. This is a disconnect in the sense that this this story stands independently as saying we're not like historically moving from one to the other. Okay, that makes sense Uh, because that is a big problem. Yeah, Uh, we'll, we'll see that here in a minute. Um, the, the reason I say this about this line is because the word keeper has already been used in a very direct, explicit way. In Hebrew, it's the word shamar, and it means to keep, guard, or observe. And in Genesis 2, which I think this story is kind of continuing, mm-hmm. human beings are told to shamar the earth, to be keepers of the earth. Oh. That's the same word, really. To protect and guide. Hmm. So the real question, I think, here that that Cain may be honestly asking is if other human beings are included in the shamar that they're supposed to have. Interesting. So when he says, am I my brother's keeper? It's, all right, so yes, you you told us that we had to shamar to be keepers, observers, protectors, guides of all the earth. Does that include him? Because if it did, well, crap. Uh, I didn't <laughs> exactly. do a very Oops. good job. Or um, it, it could be a, a question of defiance of, yeah, I know you sold us to Shamar, but not him. Mm-hmm. He was wrong. And I think that's the problem here. So when he says, am I my brother's keeper? If we're reading the text correctly, the answer is flat out yes. 
you're supposed to be a keeper of the whole thing, right? Which includes your brother. Um, so that's another interesting thing that I see happening there. And then we get that that wonderful line of um, Abel's blood cries out. Yeah. And this one's huge. And let me make sure I'm. Here, here's exactly what the text says. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So there's a lot of imagery there. God hears the cry of this blood, which is crying out, and it's crying out from the ground, which, mm-hmm. you know, Abel or Cain is um, a farmer who works the ground. And everything in Genesis 2 had dealt with, you know, the humans tilling the ground. The one part that we might not catch is blood is uh, in participle form and it's left in plural form. So ordinarily you would see blood as a dam. Uh, we'd, we'd transliterate that D-A-M and that would be the singular usage. And here we have dame, which is plural. So in English we should translate this as bloods. Your brother's bloods oh. cry out. And... Uh, you know, you look at the Hebrew yeah. perspective and the greatest condemnation somebody would have was the elimination of their line mm-hmm. and the ability to continue life. And when uh, Cain harags Abel, he eliminates not just Abel, but uh, all of the possibilities of Abel's current life and Abel's legacy and future. Right. And that, that's, that's a really interesting way to consider killing something. Mm-hmm. You're not just taking their breath of life, which is a problem. That's a command given not to do that. You're also eliminating the possibility of their life going forward. And if you were to trace out like a genealogy of these first humans, and you have Adam and Eve and human and life, and then Cain and Abel, and you're going to get Seth, and you were like to build a family tree here, you can literally see this. It's Abel and then nothing. Right. And that's what's happening here. The, mm-hmm. the bloods cry out um, and God hears the cry. That is going to be a huge line of reference to what's going to happen in Exodus, what's going to happen uh, in the wilderness narratives, uh, what's going to happen with the prophets. God hears the cry. And so here we have this ideological story where we're told, hey, God hears that cry. God hears all these cries. Yeah. That's going to be uh, important for Israel's identity. And this results in a curse. Similar to Genesis 3. Abso- I think absolutely in line with that because mm-hmm. the curses are almost the same. Right, and, you're driven away. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. driven away and the ground isn't going to produce sure. the same anymore. And especially for Cain who was supposed to be a farmer. Yeah. Now he's cut off from that source of life that he had. And, and I can't help but think that there's a connection between the ground not producing because the blood has infiltrated the ground. Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's, there's some rabbinic thought about that as well. Um, and remember, the curses in Genesis 3 are direct results, sort of a natural consequences of the world they created. And God is portrayed as using curses to protect. Mm-hmm. And this is what you brought up with Cain. The mark is going to be an effect of that curse. And that's literally to protect Cain. So it's not like we're punishing you and uh, causing you a problem now, getting back at you. Right. It's, Okay, so you did this thing, and uh, 
this is going to be a problem, so we're going to protect you with this mark. Mm -hmm. You've created this world, but I'm going to put a buffer a little bit for you Mm -hmm. there. And then the effects are, you know, difficulty uh, of farming Mm -hmm. and then wandering the earth. And I find this really uh, important because Cain becomes a nomad. Right. Cain can't own land anymore. The very thing that he put his identity in. And and seriously, I'll probably give this trope again and again. It's good parenting. Yeah. Like, hey, so, you know, you keep beating your brother with this toy. We're just going to get rid of the toy. Yeah. And now now you can't do that. You're going to have to learn a whole new way of being. And that's actually going to produce the very life that you're after and that you got angry about. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's also desert implications to this because the, the, the wandering that he has to do appears to be in a situation that isn't uh, inclined to vegetation. Um, so that's interesting to consider, but more importantly, uh, it, it is that what Cain has chosen to do will indict his relationship to the ground forever right? and his ancestors as well. Um, but here's a question that I have about this is why would anyone who meets Cain want to kill him? I wondered about that too. And my thought was, does Cain think that this curse extends to other humans because now no land will produce? I don't know. So they see Cain. And they see Cain, it's your fault. So, yeah. yeah. Some victim blaming kind of thing. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I wondered about that. What's you, what, what, what is your idea about that? Because I really couldn't figure that one out. Okay. So if I'm working with the, the narrative engine that I've tried to make a case for. Yeah. It would be that because now Cain is a nomad who will be impeding on others' territory. Oh, that does make sense. So now he's put himself in the position that he saw his brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this illusion of property, you know, he's going to be wandering where other people have this illusion of property. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Cain's kind of put himself into a position where he's now going to be the antagonist that he thought his brother was. And Cain's bought into this image. Like, we've seen this throughout the, the text. Of like, yeah, no, people own property. And my brother, you know, impeded on mine, became a threat. So I killed him. Well, now I'm going to be impeding on other people's property. Right. And they're going to try to kill me. Uh, and so he expects he's going to find a world of antagonists. So he makes a plea and God honors the plea. Mm-hmm. So the mark doesn't come. Uh, right when the curses happen, it's after Cain goes, well, wait a second, people are going to try to kill me. And that's where like, why? Because I right. think Cain's still telling himself this story. This is what's yeah. going to happen to Again, me. Again, he's creating his own world. And, he's he's yeah. kind of looking at the world the same way that he sees it, expecting human beings to react to him mm-hmm. the same way he would react to them. And, and God works with that. Right. right. You know, we're told and Adonai honors that plea. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it ends with a very similar refrain from Genesis 3. That Cain goes away from the presence of Adonai. And the other mark of that is east of Eden. Yeah. Now, one thing I'll say about this is that first, east of Eden and away from the presence of Adonai are combined. And and we're going to see that refrain again. So pay attention for that. But also, let's remember Genesis 2. There was one thing that we're told is not good. And that's for people to be alone. Right. And here we're shown just a whole lot of loneliness. There's a lot of people, right? We're we're about to be told about generations and generations and all of these different cultures. Mm -hmm. 
but there's a certain separation between people and they're not cooperating together. And why does Adam and Eve get brought together? It's not necessarily um, that they, they just needed a friend. It was that they needed, if the ground was going to be shamard, was going to be cared for, they needed to cooperate together. Uh, and so now you get this picture of there's a lot of people, but they're very separated. They're not whole. They're not one. They're not cooperating together. Yeah. And this is where I think it's fair to give a civilization critique. And there's one, I remember, I remember giving a sermon a long time ago and it was called Stop Killing Your Brother. Okay. It, with the, the intention that the very thing we see with Cain, we still do all the time. Um, but then the other, uh, the other bit that I, I like here, and again, I think this is going to come up through the rest of uh, Genesis 1 through 11, is that progress isn't always progress. And I think that's more of the attack here or, or the condemnation. It's not that settled culture is bad. It's not that agriculture is bad. It's that what we think might be progress might actually be an overextension that we don't know how to handle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of the critique I think you'll see against civilization as we go. And it's not that Israel's supposed to be anti-civilized. It's supposed to function differently with cooperation, with oneness, um, with a certain caring, with a certain sort of understanding of property and ownership and one's place within the world. Civilization seems to just directly exclude those kinds of concepts. You know, it's built on, no, you mm-hmm. progress, look what you can achieve, look what you can become. And I think the, the, the notion here is, hey, don't, don't forget, you're just, you're just dust. Yeah, right? you'll you're, see, yeah, you'll see a lot of that in their, and later on in their laws, it's kind of built in. Mm-hmm. The idea of the gleaning, for example, where you leave some of your land for other people, you consider your community. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and the whole idea of like loving your neighbor, that's yeah. not just a, a cool thing to say. Right. It's because we're supposed to be cooperating together. We have yeah. to see that there's a sort of interdependence. And I think the, the motif here is your progress could get in the way of that. Be careful of that. Mm-hmm. And I think Israel is supposed to embody a different kind of civilization. And as you go through Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. It's like Israel's constantly going, but what if we, what if we did that kind of civilization? That seems really great. Right, yeah. And it's like, well, hey, don't forget, don't forget where you come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been a problem since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Be careful, you know. And, and maybe, maybe mm-hmm. the only thing that we ought to take from this is we should at least be critical of progress. We should at least question it. Right. Are we going to lose anything here? If we want to plot down, uh, like Cain, we want to plot down land and say, no, this is mine. Oh, sure, that's helpful. You're going to produce crops better. Great. Mm-hmm. Are you losing anything? And this is where I think of uh, Robert Frost mending wall. Right, yeah. You know, it, you'd, one might want to consider if they build a wall, mm-hmm. who, what is, one is keeping out. Yeah, who what am I walling in and walling out? Yes. I might want to know, he um, says. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that seems like a little bit of a trope. It's mm-hmm. certainly a teleological idea that we should not expect to ever do correctly. The same with wealth. Yeah. But it's something that we should consider. Um, you know, whenever we're, we get into this place of like, look at look where we are now. And I, I just hear the voice of the text saying, yeah, how's that working for you? 
So yeah. almost more than this being about brothers or sibling rivalry, it's more about checking ourselves when it comes to the things that we think are progress and saying, do we really want to do this? So etiologically, that's probably perhaps the yeah. higher uh, the higher vibration of the story, so to speak. Yeah, I like yeah. that. And, and think about if this is composed uh, post-exilic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're, and they're going, hey, remember, you know this oral story? Mm-hmm. Okay, remember that because what kind of kingdom are you going to be? Yeah. You know, what kind of people group and tribe are you going to be? Mm-hmm. Remember what happened with Cain and Abel? Right. It, how are you going to handle that? Who are, you, who are you going to be here? Sure. Would you say that that whole motif of brothers maybe even would come between the fact that they had those two kingdoms that were in tension with one another? Oh, that's a you really know, it's good like connection. They started out where they were one kingdom, and then after Solomon as the king, you know, they broke up because there was civil war. There was strife because of this kind of problem of ownership, of war, of, sl- of slavery, and, and the people rebelled against it, and they mm-hmm. became the northern tribe of, of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And I wonder sometimes if that motif of the brothers isn't like the smaller microcosm of that think, tension that they had. I think that's a really great connection. Yeah. You know, you know, both both kingdom mm-hmm. saying no, it's mine. Yeah, and you both kind of forgot. Yeah, you've the, forgotten who the, you were supposed the, to be. The central indicator of you being human. Mm-hmm. And I, so I just think there's all these things at play. You know, hey, you're you're just dust with breath that's not yours. Mm-hmm. That makes you you. Don't forget that. Be critical of anything that appears to be progress. Mm -hmm. Be critical of civilization. Uh, Pay attention to the effects that the society you buy into, that it has on you, and whether or not it's mutually exclusive to this ideal that we're supposed to be pursuing. Um, I think all of these things kind of play in together. And this is where I go like, yeah, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, they're great. Genesis 3 is really popular for some reason. Like (laughs) Christians love that one. Yeah. Genesis 4 is where it's at. I love this story. I just think there's so much depth to this one uh, that we don't pay attention to. And and it's also helpful to connect. You know, part of why I take this uh, perspective to it mm-hmm. is because what happens right after this, you know, we have section headings and things that differentiate. It's a new section now. Right. You know, if you're just reading the text, that right after this, immediately we're given this story about culture. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we're supposed to be looking at this with this lens of civilization, society, culture, because now it's just going to describe that. And this next section is very ideological, too. Um, we won't spend as, as much time on this section. <laughs> um, but you'll, you'll also see some repeated patterns here. Mm-hmm. Cain knows a woman, right? right? Cain yes. yadas a woman mm-hmm. uh, and bears a son. Um, we're not told, I'm pretty sure, we're not told the name of the woman here. No. Uh, who would purportedly be Cain's wife. I think there's some traditions about her name, but yeah, you know, the, really, the text doesn't say. We, we were kind of discussing this before we started, right. and um, there is, I'm going to like go on a conspiracy theory trail here, <laughs> uh, some connection with Cain's wife, but also Lilith, who's supposed to be Adam's wife. Either way, uh, there's this idea that's come around first that, um, Lilith would have been a sort of a, a night demonic kind of being and <laughs> supposedly known and referred to as uh, 
intervening with the dreams of young Jewish boys, and that's where nocturnal emissions come from, <laughs> which is so strange to think about. But that's there. Yeah. Also, that Cain's wife um, became the origin of vampires. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, I've, I'm not saying it's true. No, well, <laughs> I'm just of course saying not. But I've heard this brought I, up before. It's, it's news to me, and I know an awful lot about folklore. I've never heard that. Yeah. I knew the Lilith story. I didn't know that about the junk Jewish boys, but she's definitely like Adam's first wife, and she was, they say, just too hard to handle. And she wouldn't go along with anything. So they kind of kill her and get rid of her and bring in Eve. Yeah, and there's also the, the whole idea of Lilith is uh, there's a bunch of references in other cultures who use a similar kind of name and spelling, yeah. and it seems based on that. Mm-hmm. But that Cain's wife, uh, I, I, I guess to some people um, became the folklore that that's where vampires come oh, I'm from. Have to look that up. So uh, do do with that whatever you want. Um, but Cain bears a son and uh, goes to a city. Um, and another connection here that I don't know that we always catch is every time they go east, more civilized, more cities. So here he goes east, and it involves cities, which means this may not be ideal. Just throwing that in with what we've already said. And then we get a genealogy. Right. Genealogy is kind of like a scene change. Um, And this one has a lot of explanations for development. So you had brought up Herds and Tents, Mm -hmm. uh, the group that plays the lyre and the pipe. Yes. So that's old school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Bronze and Iron Tools. And here's the deal. It would be easier, easy for us to look at that and go, oh, that's a nice description. Thank you for offering that detail about history. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. They're trying to tell you something. Right. There is something important about a group that is about herds and tents, a group that plays the lyre and the mm-hmm. pipe, and a group that has developed bronze and iron tools. Mm-hmm. What's happening here? This is the Bronze Age. This is the onset of the Iron Age. This is where things start getting real crazy in the Mediterranean. So I think the authors here want to explain how these things develop. Um, but another thing I'd connect between the first part of chapter four and here is it's also implicating that culture comes from certain decisions. Certain things have happened where, you know, when it says bronze and iron tools, what do you think those tools were like? You think they had pointy ends to yeah, them? Yeah, I was going to say, it turns into weapons real yeah. quick. Yeah. Um, and and that period of history is just known for its tumult. That's where mm-hmm. Syria rises. You sure. get the first sort of imperialistic war machine taking over. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to say, yeah, we're rooting that back in this thing that went wrong with this guy named Cain, mm-hmm. the owner, the possessor, the acquirer. So who kind of becomes Cain in their imagination? The Syrians, Babylonians, the Hittites, you know, that all starts playing a role there. Um, Another thing to mention here, you might be able to say more about this, but these specific inventions, sort of cultural progresses, Mm -hmm. um, usually come from deities. Yes, You know, deities invent these things, Mm -hmm. right, and give them to humanity. Here it's people. Yeah. And I think that's a thrust of intention by the Israelite writers of, no, no, hey, hey, hey. People came up with these. Yeah, that, yeah, taking those things away. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think it's a polemic against other mythologies. Um, and then you get Lamech's plea, where um, says Cain's, uh, you know, 
if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Yeah. Um, and there's what's, a lot of conversation about this. Yeah. Do you know what's going on there? The, what I heard was they call it the Song of the Swords for some reason because swords are not mentioned at all. But um, there's kind of a rabbinic tradition that that Lamech was blind and that his son. Uh, Tubokan, who happens to be the metal worker, sees Cain in the distance and kills him. And, you know, we know that because he didn't see the mark, he was in the distance, so he kills him. And because of that, then now Lamech has been cursed. So it's funny because it's like, and yet he talks about Cain being avenged seven times, Lamech 77. The only thing I can think here is it's almost like he's saying, Cain got away with it. I'm going to get away with even something more. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It seems weird to me. What have you got on that? I don't actually have much. Okay. Um, the only thing that I, the thing that stands out to me as I read that is the importance of the numbers. Right. I wondered about that. Seven and 77. Mm-hmm. It's like, and this avenging is infinitely complete. Maybe. You know? Because he's also the seventh generation. If you count Cain, Lamech is the seventh generation after Cain. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all these sevens in there. And we know what that usually, always seven seems to mean something when you're reading in the text. And then, uh, and then we get the birth of Seth, which mm-hmm, right. is a sort of repeat repetition of the opening of chapter four. Mm-hmm. Same yeah, thing, kind happens. of like a bracket here. We have we have Cain being born, and now Eve has another child. She says Seth was given to her because to replace Abel because Cain kills him. I think that's basically what the text says that she quotes there. Yeah. And um, this is where it's interesting to bring in the idea of Seth from the Egyptians, and yeah. instead of Seth being the one who is the um, catalyst for murder mm-hmm. here seth is the regeneration of humanity yeah so maybe that's another one of those kind of ways of contrasting the way their history is going to go compared to their neighbors and, yeah. and even the dealing of the fact that in in egyptian culture seth was a god a god of fertility a god of rebirth but also a god of death who kills his brother and um you know, and here though, now he's going to be the regenerator, the one who is going to be able to carry out that line that becomes Israel, and just a descendant too. Right, just, just a, a descendant. descendant. Yeah, not a god, but just a person. And what you get here is the first uh, sort of recreation, and that's going to be a theme now. It's going to be a theme, like literally through the rest of the text. Mm-hmm. And this is the first one um, where it's almost like, okay, we're going to try this again. Yeah. And uh, I think this is a way to point to Adonai's um, imminent involvement in creation. Um, So that happens. And then Enosh is born. And we're told for the first time that people began to invoke the name of Adonai, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting. That hasn't happened yet. Cain obviously didn't. Um, and, And this is where... You know, it's easy to go like, oh, so they begin worshiping God. And I don't know that that's the case, though it'd be interesting to look into the idea of worship. And, you know, did we see that at all in Genesis 2, Genesis 1? Um, invoking the name of Adonai, the name, you know, think of the, the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which right. could be translated, do not miscarry the identity of God. What we've already talked about names. Names are a description of a person. They are a an identifier of a person. Mm-hmm. So invoking the name is identifying with. It's taking on that sort of image or that presence of Adonai. Okay. And now that happens for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe Abel would have been the one to initiate that. 
and that was stolen. Hmm. Uh, but now it happens here. And that ends that segment, and that right. is going to take us into the next chapter. So do you have anything we missed from Genesis 4? Boy, no, I think we covered that pretty well. Okay. Um, so Genesis chapter 5. Possibly, here's what happens. People are going to do, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Genesis, Genesis 1. Yep. Wow, that was easy. Mm-hmm. It repeats itself all the time. Mm-hmm. Genesis 2, yeah, I like the story. Some, Good stories. Some of that stuff's weird. Genesis 3, oh yeah, love Augustine. And then they just <laughs> move right on. They do Genesis 4, and they get to the end of Genesis 4, they're like, I'm starting to get a bit winded. And now they're just listing names that I can't say. <laughs> and then you get to Genesis 5, and you start, and you go, you know what? I'm going to skip this one. And then you go to the flood story and you're like, ah, yes, back to familiarity here. Right. Um, Genesis 5 might be the most skipped chapter because we're willing to do Genesis 1 through 4, kind of. <laughs> Genesis 6 through, 6 through 9, yeah, we love that one. We're just going to go ahead and skip this one. And yeah. that's what happens. Um, unfortunately, that's kind of what we're going to do, too. <laughs> You'll um, notice all the fun stories are J-source stories. These P-source, these priestly guys yeah. are kind of boring because they love to talk about lists and genealogies and liturgies and cults, cultic practices and all that stuff. So, But, yeah, it's still interesting if you if you look at it right. I'm finding these genealogies to become more interesting than I thought they would be. And here's the deal. We're not going to skip it. But no. the part that would require the most attention is going through each of the names. Yeah. And we're not going to do that. It does have some importance, and it can tell us a lot, especially if you take the time to go, what did this name mean? What did this name mean? They are trying to tell us something with the names. Um, but the first thing to mention is the first line, which is, this is the list of the, the descendants of Adam. And then it says, when God created humankind, God made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. What's going on there? It's a reference back. We've already heard this before. Right. And, and here it comes again. So this tells us, picking up from chapter four, there is a sort of regeneration happening. There's right. a renewal. There's a restart occurring. Um, and again, what we had brought up about um, genealogies is they act as scene changes. So up until this point, we've not, Across a whole lot of chronological time. Mm-hmm. And now this is going to jump through a ton of time. And it's going to do so concisely. And it's going to help us move from one important story to the next and tell us how we got there. Yeah. So this kind of functions as a scene change. So we mentioned the P source. And what that means is that stands for priestly source. And we've talked about that before. The priestly source tended to focus on genealogies, lists, liturgies, things like that. And we definitely see that here because it's pretty much a straightforward um, genealogy given. What's unusual about it is we see these un- these very long lifespans. They're unnaturally long. And a lot of people will question that when they talk about whether the Bible is true or not or whether we can believe in the Bible. They'll point to that and say, how could that have been possible? Um, again, we have to read this as not necessarily accurate historical uh, genealogies, but th- to make a point. The scholarly approach to this is to compare it to a um, documents they call the Sumerian King List, and there is these were kind of like uh, found in a lot of different cultures, but 
they were figures that the kings would use to show how long they had, had uh, reigned in certain Mesopotamian city-states. For example, one particular king was said to have ruled for 28,000 years. Obviously, no human being has lived for 28,000 years, so the purpose of that was to legitimatize that dynasty that he has. Nobody is basing that on some kind of simple historical report of a true numerical value. But these names maybe come from a similar background or tradition, um, and this we think is possible because the names are very close to the Akkadian names. The Akkadian language would have been the Sumerian language. Uh, for example, we have the name Muthesiel, which is very much like an Akkadian name. Uh, and so we see similarities to those names, and so we kind of see that maybe those things could have been connected or at least influenced by each other. And this is where if... If you're approaching it going, uh, the Bible was sort of written on its own accord, and look look at these ages. Ah, has to be wrong. Right. You missed the actual point. Right. Where they're trying to go, hey, so y'all uh, y'all read the Sumerian kings list lately? Yeah, you know what they say about them? We're going to say something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's more of the point here. And, and we talked about this in the overview of I hate getting caught up in is it metaphor, is it history? I, I, I just don't think that's the intention of this work. And uh, you definitely pay attention to those things, but don't let that distract you from what it might be trying to tell us about why. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I see here, because the Sumerian Kingslist ages don't really seem to decline. And then you read this, and, you know, there are some similar ages and there's some ebb and flow, but generally we see these ages d- decline. And I think that's trying to tell us something about these sort of mythical people. And that's going to come to a head in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So you got to read this in light of what we're going to find out about an age limit that gets set in Genesis six. Yeah. Um, so from there, you know, let's just hit on a couple themes that we see in this that are worth paying attention to. First is this opening statement uh, reissuing the uh, languages of, of creation. I see this as an emphasis on unification, especially in light of what just happened in Genesis 4. That's about division, separation, not uh, being one, not cooperating together to guide the earth. Here we see it kind of come back to that collective mm-hmm. by saying we have common roots. So we're paying attention to these common roots. Um, and with the opening line reflecting that creation blessing, this is kind of a restart. This is us going, okay, so let's try this again. Yeah. And it emphasizes the original intention. Another thing that I think is important to the narrative arc here is that the blessing of be fruitful and multiply obviously has happened. Absolutely. What are they doing? They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. Mm-hmm. Um, and another another line that you see kind of repeated throughout this is, you know, somebody has a son in his likeness. And the image, it being in the likeness of God, starts, and that's passed down to Adam, Adam. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time somebody is born, the image is passed on to that person. So we often want to talk about the, uh, what gets passed on from Adam is the curse, right? The curses get passed on. Well, don't forget, so does the image. So don't be so uh, hasty with that critique on <laughs> Adam. Um, two, two particular things that I want to draw attention to are uh, Enoch and Noach. 
which is Noah, but the name's important there. Um, so Enoch, one way to look at this is this is going to be the person who doesn't die. Yeah. Right. So if you're reading this story, you see it's almost like a cycle gets broken. It's, he died, he died, then he died, then he died. And then you get a person who doesn't die. It says instead of where it would normally say, and then he died, it says, and he walked with God. Yeah. So there's something about Enoch that embodies a different pattern. And this will eventually be associated with a form of righteousness. Mm-hmm. So um, um, Elijah, Elijah, yeah. Elijah uh, experiences a similar thing. Um, and Enoch is going to be listed among, you know, what we call like the saints, the righteous. Right. Um, but I, I think that's an intentional sort of break of the pattern. There's something different about Enoch to where he doesn't experience one of the curses, which is death. That's one of the results of Genesis 3. Enoch doesn't experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Noach. So that's the Hebrew. And I, and I emphasize the Hebrew there because his name is important. So you're going to get this articulation about, um, about Noah. And uh, Amy, you have a particular translation that I like. Can you read that? Sure. Yeah, this translation is by E.A. Spicer. Um, This one will bring relief from our work and the toil of our hands out of the very soil Yahweh has placed under ban. Yeah, so so there's a sort of reference to the story up till this point. Yeah. And these curses and the things that you're experiencing. And Noah's name, Noah, literally means rest. And there's some commentary that explains Noah's name, Noah, as... Uh, being delivered from the pain of our hands, which is a reference to the toil and the hard work and, and the difficulty of continuing to guide creation. So what the introduction of Noach does is gives a counter narrative to what we've read so far. So that's like a flashing warning sign that something's about to go down. Yeah. And that's going to end the scene change and pick up another narrative that's going to be incredibly important for the future of the covenant. And so that will take us into Genesis 6. Um, So that's it for this section of Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. Obviously, we spent a considerably longer amount of time on Genesis 4. Um, But that doesn't mean Genesis 5 is worth skipping. It should definitely be read, and those themes should be paid attention to because they're important important to what happens next. Mm -hmm. And so next time, we are going to get into what's uh, usually referred to as the flood narratives. But I think there's more going on than just a flood. Um, So next time, Genesis 6 through chapter 9.